Right, let's go Acts chapter 4. Acts chapter 4. Um, we'll also be in 1 Corinthians 16 and Matthew chapter 6 today. So if you like to bookmark things, Acts 4. 1 Corinthians 16 and Matthew chapter 6. Um, if you don't have a Bible, we'll have the text up on the screens behind me in just a little bit. Uh, if you're watching us online right now, we'll put the text up on your screen when we get to that part of our time together. Uh, if you don't own a Bible of your very own, don't have one that you can call yours, uh, we, we enjoy giving Bibles away around here. Uh, we believe that God uses His Word for all kinds of important things. Chief among those important things is that He uses it to reveal Himself to His people. We want you to know God. We want everything in and about your life, around your life, uh, to be defined by knowing Him. And so uh, we believe the Bible is what He uses to do that. And so it's pretty, pretty smart on our part to put Bibles in people's hands and come up with creative ways for people to be reading them. And so if you don't have one of your very own, um, talk to me. We can fix that. Um, so we are on the back end now of, of a short two-month series uh, where we are, where we take a little uh, closer look at all the things that we kind of do in what we would call a church service, uh, the stuff that we do when we gather together as the, as the gathered body called the church. And, and, and so uh, we're, we're just simply taking all those different elements and we're, we're giving it the why question, right? Um, we're, we're just asking, why do we do this? Or, or why do we do this thing in that specific specific way. And, and our hope is to not only make sense of the reasoning behind why we do those th- good things uh, through this effort, um, but to also maybe even just maybe like actually affirm what we have been doing all this time. Uh, affirm them as good gifts from the God who loves us and saw fit to give us these good things for our good. So while it's true well, it's true that, that a lot of what happens in the regular weekly rhythms of the church are, are repeated for no other reason but because, you know, that's how it was handed down to us. Like, I, th- I think we've been guilty of that at times, uh, at least here and maybe other places you're familiar with. And so it, it is true that, you know, a lot of what we do is kind of just done because that's the way it was always done before and we're just repeating that. Um, at, at, at some point, though, like, Somebody did give it some serious thought. Somebody did sit down and think through why we do things in a specific way. And so if we would just take the time to like exercise ourselves a little bit and pursue the answer to those why questions, we might actually come to find that these are good things. Now, if we don't find that they're good things, we probably need to dump them and walk away. But if they are good things, we lean in, right? We embrace them and we love them even. And so, and so we've covered six different topics so far uh, from, from gathering in and of itself to why we sing to, to you know, why we proclaim God's word and uh, we, to even why we baptize in front of the congregation. Like we, we've discussed that. And so you ready for topic number seven? I want to talk about why we give whenever we gather together. Why we give whenever we gather together. Everybody's favorite topic, right? Money. <laughs> Who's excited about the money sermon? <laughs> the treasurer's excited about the money sermon. Can, can we be just, just be honest? Like, there, there's a reason why everybody feels a little awkward about this, right? Everybody's going, oh, what was I going to say? I mean, th- there are some people who think the church has never shut up about money, Right? And maybe you come out of a church like that. Maybe that's been your experience. This is kind of bread and butter for the prosperity gospel movement. Whether it's you know, some, some celebrity pastor in a flashy suit and big hair. Or maybe the more modern day equivalent. Tight t-shirts, skinny jeans, and making regular appearances on preachers and sneakers. Like, like we got them, right? 
standard operating procedure for a lot of people who call themselves pastors and a lot of places that call themselves churches. And so the, the idea that somebody would think that churches talk too much about money is that's a, that's a fair accusation in some parts of the world. It's an incredibly fair accusation. Now, I would make the argument that those places aren't really churches and those pastors aren't really pastors, but those making the assumption that churches talk too much about this, they probably don't know the difference between those two, and so it kinda, it's kind of earned by us, right? It's probably definitely earned by us, and so here we are. Got to deal with it. Which causes, I think, a lot of churches to shy away from talking about money altogether. They don't want to be painted with the same brush as the, what, you, what you see on TV, right? And so they'll just never broach the subject at all. And so they, they fear uh, being lumped in the same group. And so they'll just avoid the subject. And, and because of this reality, there are also, also a lot of people, maybe the treasurer types in the room, that think that churches don't talk about money near enough. Right? I mean, God has seen fit to fund the work of his kingdom through the resources that he's given to his people. Like, like that's his plan for accomplishing his mission in the world. And so nickels and dimes aren't merely nickels and dimes. They actually matter because they are tools that God has given us to faithfully steward. Right? We've got a mission. That mission has eternal importance so we should probably, I don't know, maybe have some more serious conversations every once in a while about what it takes to resource that mission. That seems like a wise, stewardly thing to do, right? For some people, in their minds, a reticence to talk about money in the church actually cripples kingdom work. That's a different kind of problem, isn't it? And so if you ever want to peek behind the curtain into the heart and mind of a pastor, the mental calculus that goes on in our heads... This is one of those weeks that it doesn't matter how often I bring up the topic, somebody's going to be upset that I didn't do it often enough or do it too often, right? There's a lot of these kind of subjects, but this is definitely one of them. Can't win. It's a fun job to have. Why? Because people are obviously, they've got pretty strong opinions about money and the church and giving and all those kinds of things. But if you noticed... Our, our why question this week doesn't deal with giving all on its own. I, I hope you've noticed a, a theme as we've walked through this series. I, th- I think we need to focus specifically, intentionally, narrow our focus on why we give when we gather. Why we give when we gather. I, I, I know it's dangerous. I'm, a, I'm aware of that. All right? But for the sake of time this morning, I'm just going to go ahead and assume that all of those of us in here who are mature followers of Christ, followers of Jesus, like we already understand that regular giving is not merely an option for the Christian, it's an expectation upon the Christian. Is it safe for me to assume that? Is that dangerous? Like, while, there, while there's nowhere in the New Testament that we can point to and say, thus saith the Lord, give 10% to your church, the New Testament does consistently speak with the assumption that God's people are regularly giving. 
Like it's, it's baked into the very core of the early church. And so we see frequent offerings made for missions. We see offerings to give aid to those who are suffering, such as the church in Jerusalem. In the book of Acts, whenever there's a need in the church, we see that a bunch of people just jumping all over that need and giving all kinds of stuff. Multiple people are stepping up to, to handle that need. There's also the persistent assumption uh, that those who are faithfully preaching and teaching should make their living off of the giving of the church. And so Galatians 6, 6, 1 Corinthians 9, that's, that's there. And so, and so no, there is no thus saith the Lord when it comes to giving in, in the, the church age that we would call it. But neither is it something that's just kind of like cooked up later by those that are looking to make a buck. It's the posture of regular giving is baked into the earliest days of the church. It's an assumption that none of the New Testament writers ever seem interested in, in having to teach on because well, maybe this is one of the few things they were actually getting right. It was a posture that they already understood. So I'm going to assume this morning that we're all on the same page about that. And maybe if, if you're not on the same page, we can, we can talk about it after class. You can come see me and we can, we can look at some things together. And, but assuming that we're all locked down on the regular practice of giving, I want to take the next step this morning and apply our why question concerning the practice of giving in the weekly gathering. Like, why do we do that? That seems, that seems like a weird thing to do. I mean, we got, we got a box in the back. We, we used to be a plate-passing kind of church. COVID forced us to be a box-in-the-back kind of church. I guess people don't want to touch plates everybody else touched. Like, but even directing our attention to, the, to giving within the weekly gathering, that actually creates some new problems for us. Um, so with both baptism and the Lord's Supper, we've covered both of those topics in this series. Both of those are, 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 are not every week kind of things. They're, they're, they're very rare kind of things for us. We do them infrequently. But giving, giving in the service, that's something that some of us actually never do when we walk in the room here. Not because they're disobedient, but because not everybody gives in person. We got... We got people who mail stuff in. Like, like they, they write a check and they put it in an envelope and they lick the envelope, which is gross. Right? And then they put a stamp on it and put it in the mail. <laughs> Crazy idea. We got a bunch of people around here who give online. Like, like that, that's what my family does. All right? And so like a couple clicks and they're done. Got a large percentage of our church family that gives online. And so... But, but even our, our like our, our in-person methods have changed, and 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 like we we may not go back to to passing the play. I don't I don't know. Like it's a weird thing to do, and we got people that are kind of scattered all over the place, and in all of these different methods, and all of these different options. We got people who give weekly, we got people who give monthly, we got others probably. I don't see the numbers on this, but I'm just going to go ahead and assume we got others that have worked out some other schedule in their head that makes sense to them. And so this is far from an every week kind of thing for us, and some people never do it when they're here, and so staring at all of these different options available to us, like a really honest question emerges. Like, is there a right way to do this? Is, is there one way that's better than the others? What, which one is the right way? And the answer, I think, is all of them. All of them are the right way. 
The closest thing that we have in the New Testament to a public offering is found in Acts chapter 4. Acts chapter 4 and 5. And so, uh, look at Acts chapter 4 with me. Luke tells us in chapter 4, starting in verse 32. It says, Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. And no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. Verse 33, And with great power the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, uh, and great grace was upon them all. 34, There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet. And it was distributed to each as any had need. Thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. Okay, so, so what do we see here, right? Well, for starters, for starters, we see that people during this part of the book of Acts were far more generous in the earliest days of the church than like anything we're probably experiencing today, right? Can, can we be honest about that? Like, there's, there's some kind of crazy level stuff going on here. And, and that's not to say that we haven't had some incredibly sizable gifts given to our church. God's clearly blessed us in that, but and we're, we're grateful for those things. But, like, we hope to be good stewards of those things and, 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 and give glory to God for those things and, and celebrate what God has done in those things. But at the same time, we, we don't really see this level of generosity. Like, like, this kind of story strikes us as ridiculous. What are they thinking? Right? And that's not for one second a knock on those who have faithfully given in the past year, but, like, looking at this situation, you really have to start to wonder what it was exactly that spurred that kind of radical generosity. Right? Like, like what got into them that that made sense in that moment? And some people try to take this text and run into arguments for certain political and economic structures, but those arguments always ignore the fact that this seems to be an organic thing that flowed out of the early church watching God move powerfully. They saw something, and it changed the way that they looked at the world, and it changed the way that they looked at their brother and sister in Christ, and it changed the way that they looked at needs, and it changed the way that they looked at the stuff that was in their possession. They were swept up in the grand story that changed who they were and what they valued, and they wanted in on that movement, even at great expense to themselves. They bought in with everything they had. And a celebration of what God was doing through that generosity, that was, that was also an incredibly natural thing. And so the second thing we see here, not only is there an, an extravagant, crazy level of generosity, what we also see here was the celebration of how they gave. What, what does it say? It says they laid it at the feet of the apostles. This is the closest example we have in the New Testament of a public offering. 
There was this act of celebration of laying it down at the apostles' feet. Why? Probably because the apostles firstly were provided for through that public offering, but then also secondly, it would have been the apostles who were responsible for dispersing all of the, those gifts to those who were in need, so they had charge over those things. But, but verse 34 here kind of paints the picture that this happened pretty regularly. This wasn't a one-time deal. This seems to have been a, a persistent posture, a, a persistent occurrence within the, the earliest days of the church. In verse 37, we're told about one specific story. Joseph, who is called Barnabas, right? Sells a field and gives it all away. What an extravagant love. Does that mean that we should all be like Barnabas? I don't, I don't think it does. We lose the beautiful generosity of his gift the moment we start to trying to make Barnabas' example prescriptive for the rest of us. We rob him of the great generosity that God worked through him the moment we make that prescriptive. So no, I don't think that's the example that we all have to follow. But for our purposes this morning, what Barnabas' example does teach us is that Taking up an offering when the church is gathered together is an, at least an okay thing to do. In fact, it might even be good and wise and right to, to, to celebrate what God has done through the act of a public offering. It seemed like a good way to worship in that moment. Joy explodes and God's work in and through the church is expanded through that public offering. It's an okay thing to do. We see it in the earliest days of the church. And like I said a second ago, I don't know if we'll ever go back to, to passing the plate again. There's, there's some reasons why, why maybe that's not the best you know, thing for us to do. But we're not attached to the plate model. We're not attached to the, the, the box in the back model. But like the, the main reason why churches today do one or the other, why a lot of churches have done it in the past and why churches still do that today is because they're, they're trying their best to include the action of giving within the larger experience of worship. That's all that attempt is. It's not to make a show of it. It's to, it's to invite people to, to give as they worship, as worship. That's the whole point there. It's a tangible action that, that we can make to respond to what God has done and is doing. Now, are, are there any drawbacks to the big public offering? Yep. <laughs> yes, there are. Those of you who know your Bibles well know that the story keeps going in Acts chapter 5. We don't have time to look at it in depth this morning. You can read it on your own after class. But um, let me give you the real quick Stephen Woodard version of the story. Uh, so a couple named Ananias and Sapphira, they see the attention that Barnabas is getting for this incredibly generous gift, and they want in on it too. What they don't want to do is be as generous as Barnabas was in order to get that attention. So they cook up a plan. You know, those of you who know the story, what do they do? They sell a field. They lie about how much the money the field brought in, and they make this grand show of laying the, the money at the apostles' feet. They do the exact same thing that Barnabas does. And so uh, they're, they're not looking to serve in that moment. They're not even looking to be generous in that moment. What they're looking for is everybody to go, oh, yay, Ananias and Sapphira. Great, great job. We love you. They're seeking attention. 
They don't care about loving and serving. They're after self-exaltation. And what does God do? Doesn't end well for Ananias and Sapphira. He strikes them down dead. Cute little bedtime story, right? All right, kids, good night. (laughs) Luke tells us in verse 11 that great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who had heard of these things. In other words, God made an example out of them. Kill that posture immediately. We ain't having that here. And so there is a very, very clear danger when it comes to the public offering. Self-exaltation. It crouches at the door of our hearts. So an important question to ask whenever you're giving a public offering is who exactly are you trying to make much of in that moment? What's your aim? Whether it's passing the plate or sticking the envelope in the box, what are you trying to accomplish in that moment? Who are you trying to make much of? Is it you? Is it God? What he's doing? We're talking about something serious enough here that you know, we probably, at the very least, ought to put a couple of protections in place. Can I say something uncontroversial? I don't want you to end up like Ananias and Sapphira. Seems like a bad day. This matters enough that we can't just ignore it and hope for the best. We actually need to guard ourselves against this posture. Public offerings are both allowed and modeled for us in the New Testament, but they can also go south really quick if our hearts aren't in the right place. There's danger there. What about all the people who don't go that route, right? Like, we got people who give online and by snail mail. Like, is that even allowed? Like, like, like can, can we do that? Like, like, we probably need to lay some ground rules, right? Like, is, are Christians allowed to give online or by mailing a check? Is that, that, that an okay thing for the follower of Jesus to do? Well, I, I, think, I think I can make the argument for yes. And I think I can even make the argument that it's a good thing. So 1 Corinthians chapter 16. Turn with me there. 1 Corinthians chapter 16. Jumping way ahead in our Corinthian series. It'll be a while before we get to chapter 16. But in 1 Corinthians 16, Paul is going to start some of his, uh, cleaning up some of his, you know, things he's got to talk about here. And so in uh, verse 1, he says this, Now concerning the collection for the saints, and so that's the the offering in Jerusalem that we talked about a second ago. Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so you also are to do. Verse 2, on the first day of every week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up as he may prosper, so that there will be no collecting when I come. And when I arrive, I will send those whom you accredit by letter to carry your gift to Jerusalem. If it seems advisable that I should go also, they will accompany me. Okay, so there's definitely no online banking in the first century, right? Ain't nobody setting up their checking account to automatically draw an ACH on the specific date every month. Nobody's running that game there. But what we do see here are explicit instructions from Paul to handle the offering before he gets there. He wants it taken care of and done. He doesn't want to spend his time on it when he finally walks into the room. He wants it handled and filed away. All right? 
Before he makes it into town, it ought to be handled and taken care of. He tells them to to set some money aside every week and have it all squared away so he can focus on better, more important things, good, God-glorifying things when he finally gets to town. And for many of you, this is exactly how you see your regular giving. It's something that's been squared away. You know it's an expectation on your heart and life. You know it's something that you are responsible for. And so you handle it before you get here. Right? It's, it's, an, it's an act of taking care of the needs that you know are in front of you. And it's been filed away. And now you can focus on what's actually important when you finally get in the room here. And speaking of from the administrative side of things, we're actually really thankful for people like you. All right? Um, the more people we have doing online and mail-in giving, the more stable our budget actually is. You want to know why? Because the people who give in person, they fluctuate every time people show up to church or don't show up to church. Like, think about that. Our budget's actually more stable by more people who give online and mail stuff in. So it's a good thing. It's a good thing that people do that. It creates financial health here. Are there any drawbacks to that method? Yep. Yeah, there are. Mostly. Mostly because it separates the act of giving from the celebration of what God has done. Right? It's, it's a little more difficult to be extravagantly generous when giving looks exactly like the way you pay your bills. Right? That happens in our hearts. If we're not careful, it's, it's possible to, to fall into that rut. It's, it's entirely possible to find ourselves in a place where we see our privilege of faithfully giving in the exact same light as we do paying our water bill. Is that a problem? I think it is. Like, that's a terrible place to find ourselves in. Prepared and private offerings are both allowed and modeled for us, and they can also go south really quick if our heart isn't in the right place. There are pros and there are very clear cons to this. So which version is better then? I mean, is it as simple as whichever one we're more inclined to? Is it as simple as whichever one is more convenient for us in this season of our life? Is that, is that the answer to the question of which option available to me is the one I ought to choose? I mean, both have good things to celebrate, both have dangers to avoid. Which one do I go with? Well, we've got one more text to look at this morning. Matthew chapter 6. Matthew chapter 6. See, if both... If both giving options are appropriate, um, both have drawbacks to avoid that we need to consider, then maybe convenience is not the most important variable in front of us. Maybe our posture as we give comes into play here. And so um, we... We also looked at uh, Matthew chapter 6 and, and part of our time last week when we were talking about the, you know, uh, the, the action of public prayer. And so uh, in, we're in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount here. We discovered that, that the problems we see with the practice of public prayer has way more to do with, with the heart behind that action than, than the action itself. And so uh, when the heart is looking for ways to exalt itself rather than pursue God, public prayer skews itself into this place that, that needs to be shut 
down, right? But, but if, if our heart is in the right place, public prayer is just an extension of private prayer life. And, and so just a couple of paragraphs after that teaching, all right? And so Jesus hasn't changed subjects in the middle of his sermon, all right? So just a couple paragraphs after that teaching about public prayer, Jesus now says this in verse 19, all right? He says, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. Uh, But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. And then the haymaker sentence, you cannot serve God and money. Okay, so the same deal, right? Jesus points to money, and he makes it pretty clear that how you see your money is always going to tell the world what it is you actually value. You may, you may say this and that, but your wallet is actually going to be the best thermometer for what you value. It's going to show off some things. You may claim that you have more than one master, but it's just not true. You will always be devoted to one and despise the other. Always. But your money isn't just a thermometer. It's also a thermostat. It's also a thermostat. What and how you spend and give your money away, it'll also set the direction of your heart. Always. And you already know this to be true. The very moment you start dropping lots of cash on something is the exact moment that you get very invested in that thing's success. All of us play this game. For where your treasure is, there your heart's going to be. Your heart's going to chase where you put your treasure. Always. Jesus points, Jesus' point is that investing our earthly resources into heavenly opportunities will cause you to lean a little harder into God's kingdom work. You'll, you'll desperately want that thing to succeed. It won't be a side project for you anymore. It's now got your full attention. You're going to work for it. Which, by the way, is ultimately for your best interest because he also says that that investment isn't like any other earthly investment. Right? Why? Because kingdom investments are untouchable by moth and rust and thieves who try to break in and steal. So how does all of this affect the way we, you know, we, we, we think about giving when we gather as, as a church? I mean, we, we've got some that give one way, some that give another. We've got that, some that give you know, in the box in the back and are faithful to write the check every single week, and some who do it on a monthly basis, and some who just do a couple of clicks on a mouse. Like, like, like which one is right for you? I, I think Jesus' answer to that question is, whichever one helps you sacrifice your idols and lean into the kingdom. That's the answer. It's not about convenience. The which option should I choose question is answered. Which one helps you sacrifice your idols and lean in to the kingdom? Maybe you're the type. Just go practical here. Maybe you're the type that 
that does treat online giving as nothing more than another bill to pay. I think you're missing something important. Of eternal importance even. You might need to seriously consider approaching this in a more tangible way. It might be good for your heart. Simple act of writing that check out does something in you that you need to experience. The act of putting it in the box back there would be a pathway for you to walk that trains your heart to love what it ought to love. Maybe that's important for you. We want to make that available. I mean, from the pastoral side of things, we would much, much rather train you to posture yourself for sacrificial giving than, than any stability and health that online giving would merit us. I'd, ra- I'd rather have your heart. Yeah, the, the online giving percentages are helpful for us, but if we lose the sacrificial posture, we've lost. And so we want to make that available for you all day, every day. But listen, maybe you're the type that really enjoys giving in person. But you're also the type that's hoping that somebody will watch you put that envelope in the box. Or maybe, maybe you faithfully give while you're here, but I mean, you don't give it all if you miss a few weeks. It's just something you really do for you. Maybe online giving is something you need to consider. Not only to train you in that regularity, but also to take the eyes off of you. Maybe that's something you need. And while, yes, there's a beauty in the act of worship as you drop the envelope in the box, maybe your heart would be more worshipful if you got all the attention away from you. Right? So we want to give you pathways that you can walk faithfully in that. If you struggle with that kind of stuff, we want you to get it squared away before you walk in the door here so you can focus on what actually matters. We do both. Giving online, giving in person, we gladly do both. Not because having options is the best way, but because the Bible doesn't tell us that it needs to be one way or the other. It shows off both examples, and it just assumes that we are regularly giving to the local church. It calls us to be extravagantly generous as an investment in what God is doing both in us and around us on an eternal scale. And then the details of how we get there, well, that's really flexible and can be navigated by those who are trying to walk maturely with Jesus. So we got options. So what do we do with this information? I mean, how in the world should we respond to God's word this morning, right? Like, what, what's the next step? Well, obviously, for the follower of Jesus, it, we, we repent of sin, and we lean into what God has revealed about himself in the three texts that we, we looked at this morning. That's a normal thing around here, but, like, let's be honest. There's also, there's also a giant opportunity in front of us to practice what we preach, isn't it? So, I want to introduce you to two new projects this morning. Sound good? Good. So it's been several weeks since our church had specific giving emphases that uh, we've called our church to prayerfully uh, consider uh, supporting. And so uh, I, made a, I made a couple of 
calls this week to, to people we love and are working with already, a church planter and a, and a missionary. And so I found a couple of projects that, that we can invest in. Um, Chris Harrell uh, is a church planter in Milford that we've been partnering with for a few years now. He's got a big outreach event that he's planning in the fall, the Pumpkin Festival. He's going to put a booth out there. High society out in Milford, all right? The Pumpkin Festival. Um, and so his, his budget for that is 300 bucks. Church planner's trying to figure out where he's going to get 300 bucks to pay for a booth. We could just handle that, right? Like, we, we could do that. Um, in fact, I think we can probably do a lot more than that. Um, I, I don't know if you know this, but if we go over and above that 300, I bet a church planner can figure out some other things to spend some money on. Just saying, right? Um, Silas Thompson is someone that we are supporting in Mongolia. He's actually going to be here August the 8th, and so if you've never met Silas before, uh, you should totally meet Silas. He's going to preach on August the 8th. Um, but Silas and his wife Riley are uh, going to be back in the States in the fall for what's called stateside assignment. Uh, they're going to have a little season of rest. They've also got a baby that's due in November, so that might be a giant part of it. All right? um, so they're getting pretty excited about it. Uh, but the Thompsons have a much bigger project uh, for us to consider. Um, so uh, Mongolia is what you would call a creative access country. Uh, what does that mean? It means that you can't go live in Mongolia as a missionary, but you can as a business person. You can go work there. All right, and so right now, the uh, Silas and Riley, the Thompsons, they are working uh, on a, they have a work visa, and they're working under the sponsorship of another Christian worker who owns a coffee shop. And so Silas was trained to be a barista and uh, roast coffee and all that kind of stuff. And so they get to be in Mongolia because they are working under somebody who owns a business there who said, yes, come over, we want you to work for me. They want to transition from where they are in a place where people get to hear about Jesus to a place where people don't get to hear about Jesus. Which means there's no Christian worker there that can say, yes, come work for me. And so they need to transition their visa from a, a work visa to what's called an investor's visa. Which means they need to enter the, uh, the country with capital to start a business. A lot of capital to start a business. So from my understanding, uh, Silas and Riley have already uh, raised, saved up about 40% of what they need. Um, and their plan is to hopefully try to raise the rest of it when they're back here stateside in the fall. But they've asked us if we could try to come up with $5,000 towards that goal. That's a big number. It's not an insurmountable number. In fact, I've seen us blow past that number on uh, several occasions for other good things. Maybe God's calling you to take a step and give. For those of you who do on the online thing, it's already set up. For those of you who do the box in the back thing, you write whatever you want on an envelope. Not only do we have the opportunity to encourage both the Harrells and the Thompsons this morning, but also God will be glorified by our gift. And kingdom work will be expanded by our gift. And God has promised to, that he'll bind our hearts a little closer to the Harrells and the Thompsons and what they're working on by our gift. That's what we in the business call a quadruple win. It's a good Sunday. I, I don't know what you're able to do. But maybe God's calling you to give. We got options for you. Really good options for you. What about for those of us here who maybe don't know Jesus yet. Like, how in the world do you respond? Let me, let me say it explicitly. It's not by giving. 
This is something for God's family to be a part of. God doesn't want your money. There's zero point at all, absolutely no point at all, for you to invest in a kingdom that you are not a citizen of. But you can be a citizen. You can be a part of God's family. You can respond to God's word this morning by meeting Jesus. Like a question for you to ponder. Like what would cause a bunch of people who don't seem to have much else in common to be extravagantly generous to things that don't have our name attached to it? The answer is that we've already been shown an incredible amount of generosity. An extravagant generosity. The Bible teaches that all people everywhere, you, me, the neighbor you never talk to, all people that are, are, are guilty of sin and have fallen short of the, the value and the worth and the glory of God. We are separated relationally from God because of our sin. And so we have rebelled against him. And the Bible is incredibly clear that we deserve the wages, the thing rightfully earned for our sin. It calls it death. Other places in the Bible calls it God's wrath. We are separated relationally from God, but God came and did something in an extravagantly generous way. The eternal Son of God put on flesh and dwelled among us. He lived a sinless life that neither you nor I are capable of living, and he died on the cross as an innocent substitute to make payment, full and final payment for your sin. He was raised again from the dead as a vindication of his perfect and sufficient righteousness. And now, as the one who conquered sin and death, he calls on you in this very moment to respond to him in repentance and faith, to turn away from your sin and to turn to him as Savior and Lord. You can do that this morning. You can meet Jesus, and I'd love to be helpful to you. I'll be down front if you want somebody to talk to about it. I'm going to pray. We're going to sing. Whoever you are, However God is calling you to respond this morning, let's respond together as one big family. Father, you're good to us. Thank you for the scriptures. Thank you for examples and warnings. For being the God who cares more about the condition of our heart than the action of our gift. God, we, we confess that Sometimes I'm more concerned with what people see me give than how I give or how much I give. That's in me. Sometimes I'm very scarily much like Ananias and Sapphira. That you died for that sin too. You sent your son because we were wicked and far from you. Even when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, you make us alive. So Father, as we respond with the opportunity to give as a church, would you remind us first of what you have done for us? We have never, ever been more extravagantly generous than you have first been to us. And we'll never come close to catching up. So God, where we are able, create a desire in us to, to love and the Harrells and the Thompsons well. And we are not able, help us to trust and rest in what you have done and we can never match. Father, for those in here who don't know you yet, would you make yourself known? Would you open eyes to see and ears to hear, hearts to know you? Expand your kingdom today by your grace. 
In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.